rest of us, go ahead and grab uh, your Bible and turn to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 9. If uh, you don't have a Bible, there should be one in a chair within reach. Definitely grab one so you can follow along with the words for yourself. Matthew is in the New Testament, sort of toward the end of your Bible, the first book in the New Testament after Malachi before Mark. Matthew chapter 9, we're doing a verse-by-verse through, verse-by-verse study through the book of Matthew, taking each verse as it comes. We'll be in verse 14 to 17. Well, throughout the Bible, there's one thing we see from beginning to end that God is regularly uh, addressing, frequently correcting with humanity, correcting in a firm way. And this is empty externalism and man-made religious tradition. Empty externalism refers to an approach, an approach to God to spirituality, to church, uh, which goes no deeper than outward routine, skin-deep rituals, thoughtless approach to God, the idea of an absence of thinking deeply about God, empty externalism. uh, The absence of cultivating an approach to God and, and, and His church with a sincerity of heart, a depth of heart of thought. Man-made religious tradition, you see God correcting this over and over and over throughout time. These man-made religious traditions, in other words, mandating practices and approaches to God which are not grounded in the Word of God, which are not grounded in the principles from the Word of God. God really wants us to steer away from doing things as far as spirituality and approaching God goes, veering away from those because it's just what we've always done. Because uh, that's how grandma always did it. God has nothing against grandma, but he does against empty, stale formalism, external formalism. Perhaps you've seen those, those doggy Olympic shows on TV. Have you seen those? Doggy Olympics? My, my sister has a very gifted... Uh, dog of some sort. <laughs> she wouldn't be happy right now if I couldn't remember the kind of dog it is. Oh boy. But those doggy Olympic shows, those shows where, where, where these, these well-trained dogs will jump through hoops and fire themselves through small spaces and duck under things and up a beam and down a beam and they get a treat at the end uh, and so on. Empty externalism and man-made religious tradition can be like that. In a sense, we go up and down and all around and we, we jump through the hoops because, well, look, it feels good where we're, we're doing something. We have the presence of activity and besides the fact that, hey, there's the treat of flattery that flatters my ego and this and that, but it's empty routine, shallow tradition. Now, there's nothing wrong with routine and tradition per se, but there is with thoughtless, mindless, hypocritical Heartless approaches to God. This is not what God is getting at. I've never spent time in the South, but as I talk to many people from the South, I regularly hear this, and I'm not making this up. I regularly hear people from the South say this. You know, I grew up going to church because everyone in the South went to church. 
but it was just something we did. And I always think to myself, I I can't think of a worse reason to go to church than that. God has regular concern that, that the things we do as far as knowing him, worshiping him, spirituality, that we would think about what we are doing. We would cultivate a heart in what we are doing. Because it's about God. It's about his glory. That we would approach him in repentance and love and sincerity. I find sometimes that people are surprised to learn that. This idea that it, that it has been people and not God who are the ones that have created these hypocritical, empty, man-made traditions, thoughtless, mindless routines, stale approaches to God. God never asks humanity to do that. In fact, places like Isaiah 1, 8th century BC, God's saying, please, he says in Isaiah 1, in effect, he says, please stop the hypocrisy. Stop coming and jumping through the hoops every Sabbath day. I'm so tired of it. And then again, in, in, in Malachi chapter 1, fast forward four centuries, God says to the, the people of that day, he says, look, a father, a, a son treats his father with honor. Where's my honor then from among you guys? He says, you come to me and you throw these offerings at me and do your empty formalism. It's stale. Where's my honor, God says. And then again, as we read in Colossians 2, in our opening reading, God, uh, God says through the Apostle Paul, he says, beware, beware of these empty philosophies of man-made traditions, Colossians 2, 23. They, and, 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 and Paul is so discerning, he says, they have an appearance of wisdom. They, they have an appearance of benefit, but they are worthless. Worthless. Humanity is inclined towards this. Because it's easy, it's, it's self-flattering, it's, it's, it, it, it makes the flesh feel good. It scratches an itch, but it goes no deeper than that. And this is what Christ will address in our passage this morning for study, verses 14 through 17. Follow along as I read. Christ addressed this in many places, many, many places. This is one of the, the more interesting ways he goes about it. He has come to fix this. About us. Follow along as I read Matthew 9, verse 14. Then the disciples of John, speaking of John the Baptist, came to him, to Jesus, asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast? But your disciples, they don't fast. Jesus said to him, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they'll fast. But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and a worse tear results. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wineskins burst and the wine pours out and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins and both are preserved. This is Christ speaking here. To those who are caught up in empty formalism, vain traditions of men, thoughtlessness. I did it because I did it. Christ is, this is one of the main things that he wants to correct. He is bringing life 
and light into the darkness of empty human formalism and externalism. And through his teaching and through his miracles and through himself, through his death on the cross and resurrection and through the Holy Spirit, whom he will send later in Acts chapter 2, he's bringing, he's bringing substance to the hollow shell, the stale shell which Judaism has become here in the first century. And perhaps which you've seen in your life. Perhaps you grew up with this. Perhaps you're in this. Christ brings living water to the parched souls of hypocritical religious tradition. He offers to exchange our fatigued, empty externalism for a living, joyful substance. He offers himself. That's what's happening in this passage. So with that, the main idea for our study, just sort of a big picture. It's in your bulletin as well. I'll put it up here. God is not asking us. There's sort of the, the helicopter view here of what's going on. God is not asking humanity to perform religious traditions and empty externalism in order to impress or relate to him. He's not asking that. But to quench the thirst of our souls and the saving knowledge of the person, the grace, the mercy the work of Jesus Christ. God is not asking us to do, the, to do the doggy acrobat show here, spiritually speaking. But to, to come to quench the thirst of our souls in the saving knowledge of Christ. So our outline, we're going to see three guides from the text. Three guides out of empty formalism and into a living relationship with God. Three guides out of empty formalism and into a living relationship with God. God wants to help us and move us out of vain traditions of men and into a sincere, saving knowledge, fulfilling knowledge of Christ. Number one is this. Empty externalism and man-made traditions are not the ways, very simply, God is asking us to relate to him. Empty externalism and man-made tradition are not the ways. We've got to start, what is, not, what is God not commanding here? Because this was not a given in first century Judaism. And it's not a given even as we look across much of the religious landscape in our world. These are not the ways God is asking us to relate to him. Look at verse 14. With me. Then the disciples of John came to him. A little bit of historical background here. The disciples of John refer to those followers of John the Baptist. Recall that John the Baptist, back from places like Matthew 3, he was a prophet born around the time of Christ. And, and, and really, the, pur- the purpose of his brief ministry before he's thrown in jail and gets decapitated, executed, he, he was to be a forerunner for Christ. His job was unique in that. He was to sort of wake up Israel out of their stale formalism and kind of shake them awake, spiritually speaking, and say, get ready. Christ is about to arrive. The Messiah is coming. Turn from sin. This prophet whom the uh, people like Isaiah, Jeremiah and others told, told you about centuries ago, he's coming. And so the person and work of Christ is of such significance that God has a guy whose life and ministry is solely devoted to be an arrow to him and to get people ready for him. 
He's the last arrow in Old Testament time, even though he's in the New Testament. You see this recorded, for example, in in John chapter 3. I'll put it up here. It says this. And they came to John, John the Baptist, and they said, a little bit of ministry kind of jealousy going on here. They said, Rabbi, he who is with you, speaking of Jesus, beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he's baptizing and all are coming to him. And so they think he's going to be jealous. But he's actually very excited because he knows that the substance of life and knowledge of God is Christ. And so verse 27, John answers and said, a man can receive nothing unless it's been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I'm not the Christ. I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, John referring to himself, the friend who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, I must decrease. So these guys think, they think John's going to be jealous. He says, look, I am as excited as the friend of the bridegroom here. I rejoice. This is what it's all about. My joy is full that Christ is coming. And so he says, he says, in effect, my life is an arrow to him. Since he's here, I need to decrease. I need to become less of a big deal. He needs to become more of a big deal. And shortly after this, indeed, that happens. John gets thrown in prison for faithfully preaching. But as John the Baptist is thrown in jail... Some of his followers uh, are a bit mistaken. They haven't followed the arrow towards Christ. They've stood at some of these stale, formalistic traditions of Judaism. They're a bit mistaken, evidenced by their question. Look back at verse 14. They say, why do we and the Pharisees fast? So they're, they're with the Pharisees in this. Please notice that very important detail in the text. Hey, we and the Pharisees do this thing. But why don't you guys, why don't you do this? Why don't your followers, why would John's disciples be concerned about whether or not Christ and his followers fast? Because at this time, fasting was one of the main expressions of Judaism. It was fasting was one of the three pillars in Judaism. There is fasting, praying, and giving to charity, financial giving. These are the pillars and Christ, they notice in his ministry, he's not really talking about these things except, except for how people are using these to showcase themselves and applaud themselves. And he's saying it's wicked. That's not why you do these things. We're not going for an empty externalism here. So it's surprising to much of, of the religious authorities, these followers of John the Baptist, that Christ gives little attention to these rigid, empty traditions that they held dear. Now, a few, a few notes on fasting here. We covered this in depth in our study of Matthew 6, 16 to 18. But briefly, fasting was commanded in Old Testament times, but there was only one fast commanded. And it was on Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, in Leviticus 16. Uh, this was, there was one fast, and of course, they, this is no longer commanded because of what Yom Kippur is about. The great need. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. We can, we can take that down for a second, thanks. Um, Yom Kippur was about the need for our sins to be wiped away. The Day of Atonement, our, our sins to be atoned. And Christ comes and he fulfills 
Yom Kippur and the Day of Atonement. And so there's no need for that celebration anymore. And so the fast is not commanded anymore. So there is no fasting commanded in the Bible. You are allowed to, but it's not commanded. So people were, people were fasting sort of, a, sort of a spiritual vending machine approach. I fast, I get what I want. Um, super spiritual approach. I, if I fast, you're like a spiritual superman or superwoman. I fast to get into heaven. But none of these things are what God is getting at. The reasons people would fast is a, a grief for offending God. We see that in 2 Samuel 12. A grief over our sin. A deep, sincere, heartfelt brokenness. Repentance and turning to God. Uh, Isaiah 58, Acts 9.9. 9. Uh, seeking biblical clarity on something, really needing wisdom in a very difficult, weighty situation. You might fast for that. We see that in Acts 13, of course, along with Bible study. Seeking God's help in crisis, pleading with God for some suffering. We might fast for these reasons, but it is to be a deep, sincere heart. It was not to be this religious, theatrical, sort of self-flattery, look-at-me thing. It was to be a humbling of ourselves before God. But for the Pharisees and, and for these guys, fasting and a lot of their religious stuff was not an internal act of the heart. It was just an act of the calendar, of the calendar. They had their fasting scheduled on Monday and Thursday at this time. So when Monday came, whether or not they had a heart for God and they didn't, they would fast. It was merely a thing as deep as their daytimer. Hence the reason Christ is not talking about it. He's correcting it. It was a feel-good thing. And again, back in Matthew 6, I'll, I'll put that up again. We get some insight here. Christ says, look, whenever you fast, don't put on this gloomy face as the hypocrites, they, for they neglect their appearance so that they'll be noticed by men when they're fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, he's not saying fasting is obligatory, but he's saying if you do it, when you do it, Anoint your head, wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your father who is in secret. And your father who, is, who sees what is in, done in secret will reward you. So recall, a hypocrite, a hypocrite here, it, when Christ speaks the word, it doesn't mean only insincerity. It doesn't mean that my actions don't match my feelings. The Pharisees were very sincere about their fasting. They were very sincere but it means doing something for my own praise and my own glory. Formalism. So Christ's words provide helpful insight into why people in general, not only Pharisees, would keep certain traditions. Because people, people usually aren't going to keep traditions just for keeping traditions. There's a, there's a bigger doggy treat than that for keeping traditions. It was, it was, it was a weight they put on themselves, these traditions... So they could say, hey, everyone, they could walk around and say, hey, everyone, look at this weight I can carry on my back. Look what I can do. Look at this routine I can keep. It was all about self. But God is never asking us to do this, and neither is he impressed in the least bit. Matter of fact, he strongly condemns it. Despite how impressed they were with themselves. So if the Pharisees were around today, they'd be taking selfies of themselves when they fasted. Their, their Facebook feed would blow up with pictures of them fasting. 
and giving alms and, and doing other things. They kept traditions to be noticed because sin has broken humanity and we are bent. We are bent on self-worship. The return is for self. That's the idea here. That's part of the lure of empty tradition as another text illustrates. Just to kind of fill out our understanding here in Mark 7. I'll put it up here quickly. Here we have the Pharisees and the scribes again. They ask Jesus, why do your disciples? They're asking another question. Why do your disciples not walk, notice, according to the tradition of the elders? But eat bread with impure hands. This is a big religious thing. You're to wash because when you're in the marketplaces around irreligious people, you'd get dirty. And so you had to wash your hands. It was more than a hygienic thing. He said to them, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it's written. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me. In emptiness, in other words, they keep teaching as doctrines, the precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. In other words, you might be observing some century-old traditions, stuff that grandma and great-grandma, has, they've done forever. But time and tradition do not bring worth to a thing. Truth, biblical truth, sincere knowledge of God does. Matthew 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes. Woe. Verse 25, meaning condemned. You're condemned, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they're full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean. Christ says, we have a problem here, guys. We, we, have, a, we have a problem. You might be the most faithful, routine, religious keepers here in, in, in the world. You might jump through these obstacle courses every week, every Sabbath. But that does not make you God's gold medal child. You're, you're wicked on the inside, he says. You don't care about change, about repentance, about knowing God and growing and transforming. You just want to appear like a nice, clean coffee cup. That's full of mold, though, on the inside. you got to be washed. So then, why, to answer the question in verse 14 in part, why does Christ steer away from these things? Because it was all about a show. Empty externalism. Showing up at synagogue, fasting, praying. As opposed... Like many in empty religious traditions today, they assumed if you stuck with these things, then God would, then, then God's going to have a parade for you when you show up in heaven. He's going to have a Gatorade dumping on you and just be so thrilled if you did all these things. But Christ condemns it all. He condemns it all. God isn't asking us to be a spiritual circus performer. Get up on the trapeze, do these neat things. Get an applause. The light's on you. Feel good about yourself. To be sure, God is asking us to obey and keep certain routines like prayer, corporate worship, going to church, giving, hearing the Bible. But he's not asking us to do it as if we're going to impress him. Our lives are to be a thank you card to him in response to what Christ has done. He's not asking us to perform to impress. Why is that? Because... Because we are sinful creatures. We are finite creatures. 
in need of his forgiveness for one thing, but even more, because God doesn't relate to us as a king to his court jesters. He relates to us as a father to his beloved children who need his grace and his mercy. Stop the court jesting, God says. Stop it. Empty externalism fasts because of the calendar day. True worship fasts because of a deep longing and a heart for God. Empty externalism goes to church because it's Sunday and that's what we always do. True worship goes to church because of a need for Christ, a love for Christ, the substance of Christ. Empty externalism maintains spiritual traditions because of pressure from people, but true worship of God keeps traditions out of love for God, a desire to grow in his word, to know him. Empty externalism approaches religion for surface level comfort and scratching the itch. True worship of God seeks to dive deep, to feast on the soul-satisfying truths, the meat of God and his word. Empty externalism values spirituality for the mere sense of self-worth and feeling. True worship of God values Christ for Christ. God offers something so much better than self-centered, empty externalism. Christ himself, which is what he goes on to explain, number two here. Number two, Christ then is the substance, the object, and the end of soul-satisfying worship. Christ is the substance, the object, and the end of soul-satisfying worship, verse 15. It's about him. These, these, just doing tradition for routine's sake is so tiring. It is so exhausting. And some of you who have been in these traditions, you know that, and you did it, but you kept doing it because it was like, uh, but you always wondered in your mind, perhaps, uh, something isn't right about this. You're right. Something is greatly wrong with it. We've got to come to the fullness and the, and the substance of Christ. Look at verse 15. Jesus says, he answers the question now with a word picture. The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? What an answer. What a, what a packed answer here. He says this in effect, and then we'll kind of dissect it. He says, why in the world should people fast and mourn when I, God and the Messiah, am with them? And I am fulfilling all the awaited promises. How do we know that? Because often, to begin with, God is speaking of his love and his care and his unity with all who would put faith in him, in him uh, metaphorically as a husband to his beloved wife. And, and these guys hearing this, familiar with the Old Testament, would know that. Isaiah 54, for example, God says this in Isaiah 54, seven, eight centuries earlier. He says, fear not. God says this to his people. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. You will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. He's speaking of their sin, their vain tradition. It won't be like that one day, God says. 
You will remember no more. Four. Why, God? Why? Your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. Like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you. But with great compassion I'll gather you. The love and the unity God has with his people. So with that in mind then, what is Christ saying about himself in Matthew 9 as he answers the question about fasting first? Implicitly, he is saying that he is the husband. Christ, this guy standing before them. That he is their maker. He is their Lord. He is their God. He is their redeemer. He's the God of the whole earth, Christ says. And I'm standing right in front of you. Don't miss that. And even more, he's saying, look, why should we do this fasting thing, which is about mourning for times of, of great grief? Why should we do that and just do the Monday, Thursday thing when I, I am your maker and I'm standing right in front of you? You're not thinking about what you're doing here. Why would you do that when the God of the earth is before you, the God who loves you, the God who will save you, the God who will satisfy you, the God who will gather you up to spend an eternity in heaven? Why are you walking around with dirt on your head and grieving? You're doing it for some other reason. Put down the external rituals, God says. Stop jumping through the hoops for a moment and meet God perhaps for the first time. That's what this is all about, knowing God, relationship with God. The grace of forgiveness, filling your parched souls. The Pharisees were so enamored with themselves and what they could do spiritually that they missed their glorious creator standing right in front of them every single day. They missed what King David had said a thousand years earlier. David knew, being imperfect, having a heart for God, Psalm 27, 4. I'll read it to you. He says, One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And here was the greater temple himself, Christ. Christ is the temple. He's the place we meet God. He's the place we gaze at God. And we can do that more than David could, being 3,000 years later. As we see him in the pages of Scripture Point being, Christ is the substance and the object in the end of soul-satisfying worship. And so this marriage metaphor in verse 15, in Jewish culture, as all cultures probably, weddings are time of great celebration. That's what they symbolize. They symbolize, uh, in, of joy, they symbolize joy, a celebration of a, of a new unification beginning. So that, that's what he's getting at here. Christ has come with, to his people. This is a time of joy. Not all the prophecies are going to happen now. Heaven is yet to come. Some are yet future still, but it's started. He's here. Your God is here. The only one who can fill the empty chasm in your soul is here. It's going to be okay. It's going to be better than okay. And so he says, the attendance, verse 15, the attendance of the bridegroom, they can't mourn when I'm standing here. You don't go to a wedding and uh, mourn and sadness and grief. Who does that? Christ says, I want you to think about what you are doing as you approach life and, and me. 
God is not asking you to just show up, scratch the itch, go through the routine because that's what good people do. He's not asking you to come in, chant the same thing every week, do the same hand motions every week, take the same wafer every week, smell the incense, look at the stained glass. This is not what God is getting at. Christ says, I want you to think about what you are doing here. True worship of God is not about herding humanity into their religious hamster wheels and line up the hamster wheels next to each other and then run so we can all in effect say, hey, look at me. I'm performing well on the hamster wheel. What about you? Oh, cool. You too. Where are we going? Nowhere. We're going nowhere. Great. It feels good though. Feels good. At least it scratches my religion itch. And never mind that there is no deepening in Christ, no passion for Christ, no learning and growing in Christ, no progression in Christ. We're all here in our churchy little hamster wheels. Wonderful. Wonderful. But here's the thing. Many people like the spiritual hamster wheel approach. That's what they want. They want first church of hamster wheel. What church do you go to? First church of hamster wheel. Do you feel good at that church? I feel great. What are you learning and growing in? Nothing! But I love my hamster wheel. It's predictable. It's not super hard. It's, there's, here's the thing, there's effort. There's external activity. It never goes too deep. It stays at this comfy surface level. I'm never challenged to see myself for who I am, to see that I really have sin in my heart. I'm never challenged to see that. I'm never challenged to see and to look at my motivations, look at my thoughts, look at my inclinations. Hamster wheel religion of Christianity keeps that safe distance. It's a brilliant design, really. It's a brilliant. Because I have the appearance of spiritual activity and some external stuff. I'm running. And I feel like I'm doing something because I am exerting effort. I feel like I'm doing something right. The surface itch is scratched. A few emotions are moved because I feel the inspiration. I went on a run. I feel the inspiration. I feel inspired. Why? I don't know. I just do. But that is precisely why it is so dangerous. It has no, it has no surface appearance of danger. It does not say it's dangerous. It doesn't feel dangerous, which is why it's so dangerous. We're never really challenged to be made uncomfortable by the greatness of the true God, by the holiness of the true God, by the glory and the sheer grandeur and weight of the true God. And consequently, we're never really faced with the depth of our true sinfulness, our true need for God. The word Savior never really takes traction in our hearts because we never feel like, I really need to be saved. It's just a hamster wheel thing. Never really to see the extent of my true problems, the great need to change. Never really need to examine my beliefs. No challenge to go, to go deep and to study, to be uncomfortable. We put on a smiley face. And the beauty of hamster wheel approaches, with a hamster wheel, you never need to get too close to each other. You're next to each other. I can see you. You see me. How you doing? We're together again, running our hamster wheel. But we never need to get too deep into each other's lives. I keep you at a safe distance. You keep me Just let's keep that understanding, okay? So we don't go deep and get into each other's lives. Wonderful. First church of hamster wheel. It's time to get out of the hamster wheel. Are you a hamster wheel Christian? 
come to the loving, merciful, gracious God who will forgive you and fill your soul. It's so tiring. Get off the thing. Good night. Get off the thing. God is so forgiving. He's so merciful, so satisfying. We can come to God and say, oh God, forgive me for treating you like a cosmic monkey that needs to be pacified by my external tricks. God, you're the God of glory, of life, of love, of truth. And yes, life will be hard. There will be suffering. There will be strength. But we'll be founded on the depth of the rock of Christ and his word. And you'll have this joy that's inexplicable in all the struggles. The struggles won't go away. They'll probably get harder. You have this peace through the Holy Spirit who indwells you an enduring presence that will be amazing, frankly, to you sometimes. How, do I, how did I get this? Because Christ is in me. Christ is our sustenance. We don't, we're not doing this to do this. We're doing this because Christ. The music and even, even the preaching and gathering and the small groups, those are important, but they're not what brings life. Christ is what brings life. He's saying, look, I am here in front of you. Stop it. Stop the empty externalism and come to me and be saved, have life. The presence of Christ, he's saying, is the joy of his people. Celebrate. Fill up with Christ. He's the greatest joy which remains through all other lesser joys. All joys might flee, but Christ never Christ never flees from us when you put faith in him. And so true worship of God becomes a response to who God is and what he's done in dying for us on the cross. Obedience to Christ is a response to his greatness, to his love, to his satisfying presence, to his death on the cross for us. So this, by the way, answers a question that comes up often that especially a lot of Reformed and Protestant churches get this question. Why don't you guys in your churches, why don't you fill up your churches with candles and crucifixes and crying Mary statues that look nothing like Mary, incense, stained glass, icons, relics, the bones of the three wise men? Why don't you do that? Why don't you do that? Nothing wrong with candles, no one's saying that. But the reason we don't need to fill up our lives with those, those things is because our hearts are already filled with Christ. So we're not grabbing, I feel this emptiness, I've got to grab and surround myself with stuff. Our hearts are filled with Christ. And so we're so satisfied and, and, and we're rested in Him, aren't we? If, if you have a living faith, you don't, need, you don't feel the need to fill your life with icons, and external things in that sense. They'll be no more effective than supposing you can fill up a bucket with a hole in it. Come to Christ. And then verse 15, in the end, he says, but the days will come. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they'll fast. This could refer either to Christ being taken away at the crucifixion or when he's taken from earth after his resurrection, he ascends back into heaven. We know that God's people fasted in the book of Acts, which is after he ascended 
back into heaven. And why did they? Not because it was Monday or Thursday. They did it because they had a heart for Christ. They longed for other people to know Christ. They wanted to please Christ. There was substance in it. We can do the same. But keep in mind, ever since the coming of Christ, there is this elevated joy. Yeah, he's not physically here, but like the joy meter of history shifted, increased when Christ came to earth. Because he's here, because all the promises are fulfilled. Because our sin and our guilt can be wiped away through his death. Because through his abiding presence, we can have joy and stability, though the times are anything but that. He is the joy of his people. And you might be going through some immense suffering or about to enter some immense suffering. But you can still have joy in it because Christ is the joy of his people. His presence through his spirit, through his word, faith in him can never be taken away from you. The torch of joy never needs to be burnt out in your life through Christ. He loves you and is with you and is working all things to a perfect end, eternity in heaven. The wedding will continue, though it might be dark now. Put faith in Christ. Put faith in him. Number two. Number three. Though appearing similar to Christianity, to biblical Christianity... Empty externalism is incompatible with a living relationship with God and Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Though appearing similar, in other words, Bible verses might be quoted in some of these empty traditions. They might use the name of Jesus. That's what they did with these disciples here of John. The Pharisees, they used Bible verses. Though appearing similar, empty externalism is incompatible with a living relationship with God and Jesus Christ, verse 16 and 17. Look at verse 16 with me. But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and a worse tear results. So he's gonna, he gives this illustration. He'll give another one about the wineskins. And they flow out of, the purpose of the illustrations is to further explain The question he answers in verse 14 and 15. That's the purpose here. He wants to further explain what's going on here. First of all, let's ask, what do these illustrations illustrate? What is the point? Generally speaking, they illustrate this. Incompatibility of something old with something new. Incompatibility with something old and something new. Some of you, when you 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 upgrade your computer, you get a new laptop... And you get, you know, you have Windows from the 90s or whatever, and oh, it's not compatible with whatever, or some program isn't compatible. They, they don't cross over at all. That's what Christ is saying here. Incompatibility of empty formalism with me, with the true knowledge of God through Christ. That's the idea here. They might look the same. They might have Bible verses, but the old adage, oh, well, they're about the same. I mean, Christ to all trails to the top. No. Christ is saying they're incompatible. Look at verse 16 again. No one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Very simple illustration. You have a hole in an old pair of pants or whatever. You take this new piece of cloth that hasn't been washed yet and put it on. But if you do, it'll rip the thing even worse. Why? Because it hasn't been shrunk yet. So when it shrinks, it'll tear it. 
Very simply, those two things are incompatible. The new thing will not harmonize with the old. How does this harmonize uh, with what Christ is talking about? How does that relate to empty externalism and the arrival of Christ? Well, the old garment symbolizes these empty traditions, and more specifically in the context, Judaism. Traditions from the Mosaic Covenant that need not be kept anymore. That people were relying upon for an end in themselves, not realizing they point to Christ. Now, a new illustration, verse 17, follow along. Here he says, Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wineskins burst, and the wine pours out, and the wineskins are ruined, but they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. What's going on here? Wine in the Old Testament, in places like Isaiah 26.5 elsewhere, uh, it symbolizes God's provision, uh, the, the harvest, the blessing of God, a time of celebration, thankfulness to God. And in those days, they didn't have uh, nice bottles for wine, but they had animals walking around in the forests. So if you're part of PETA, close your ears right now. But what they would do is they'd take the animals and they'd cut its head off and then cut the limbs off and they'd sew up all the orifices of the animal and they'd use the neck as a spout. And they'd, they'd, they'd pour brand new wine after it had just been made into the wineskin. Now, why did they need a new wineskin to do that? Because the wine was still fermenting. And so it would, it would expand inside the wineskin. So if it was an old wineskin that had already expanded because of new wine, they would be brittle and kind of dry. Some of you who do tanning and hiding, you know what that's like. It, the thing would just break open because of the expansion, the fermentation of that new wine in there. So Christ saying, you don't do that. New wine with the old wineskin, incompatible. Incompatible. Yeah, the one is wine and the one's a wineskin. It seems like those should go together. Some of this empty formalism, these traditions, use Bible verses, they say Jesus. Seems like it should go together. Incompatible. You need the new wine of Christ. The fresh wine of the gospel of the person of Christ, the substance of Christ, the refreshment of Christ. Otherwise, it's just going to spill all over the ground. Why am I tired? Why am I tired? Because it's spilling all over the ground. You exert this, this effort and your vain traditions, but nothing comes of it. It spills all over the ground. The old wineskins then symbolizes... These empty traditions. Now, please hear this for a moment. Sometimes people take this to refer to, well, just the Old Testament, the old wineskins. He's not saying that. Because Christ in Matthew 5, 17, in the Sermon on the Mount, he, say, he doesn't say, hey, I'm just throwing away the Old Testament. The Old Testament doesn't matter anymore. He's not saying that. He says, on the contrary, I've come to what? Fulfill it. Come to fulfill it. Right? I've come to fulfill it. And so the the temple, all the details about the temple in the Old Testament point to Christ. The temple in the Old Testament was the place where you went to meet with God and and to have a spiritual experience with God and to know God. Christ now is the greater temple where we, he's the place we meet God. He's the place we experience God. He's the place we know God. Not our glands, not a feeling. The sacrifices of the Old Testament, they, the sacrifices, the purpose of them was to to, to show, look, they demonstrated how, the, how imperfect humanity can be reconciled to a perfect God. 
The way that humanity is right with God and forgiven to have their guilt removed is through the shed blood of an innocent substitute, sacrifice, and all the animals pointed to Christ. He's the final one. He's the place we meet God and have forgiveness with God. So the Old Testament is like this two-dimensional sketch, a pencil sketch, and the New Testament with Christ coming is like the 3D model that fills out and completes the sketch. He's not throwing it away. He's not throwing it away. Judaism twisted the Old Testament, mandated things that the Old Testament did not. Again, this is about incompatibility. And the Old Testament is not incompatible with the New. That's complementary. It'd be like saying God is incompatible with himself. He's the author of the Old and the New. It's not like two different systems. The Old Testament is like the arrow. The New Testament is like the destination. The Old Testament is like promises of great things. The New Testament is fulfillment of the great things in Christ. The Old Testament is like basically saying, hey world, we really need Christ. It's about Christ. We all need him and he's coming. And the New Testament is like, hey world, Christ is here and he's begun to fulfill these promises with more to come. Put your faith in him. So it's about incompatibility, these dead religious traditions. Instead, we have the new wine of Christ in his life. His death on the cross to bring us that substance, that fulfillment, that joy. So the big point here is, whoever you are, whatever time, whatever place, whatever tradition of thought you are in, spirituality, worldview, philosophy, religion, if it's not founded on simple childlike faith in the person and the work of Christ, then it is a broken, brittle wineskin that can hold nothing. Nothing. Christ is not a, looking to continue empty externalism, but satisfy the soul with a new wine of the gospel. Christ is saying, come away from the formalism. Take in me. Take in my love for you. Believe in me. Yeah, you're going to have to break with some things, but trust me. I'm God, he says. Incompatibility. Well, what are a couple of so what's as we conclude here? A couple of so what's we can take from this passage. Number one, evaluate your life routine. So what? Number one, evaluate your life routine. Assess what you're doing in life. Push pause. Step off the hamster wheel for a moment. Push pause. And think, is there actually value, eternally speaking, to the stuff I cram into my life and my schedule? Really, is there value to it? Yeah, it scratches my itch, but is it scratched the end for which I exist? Are the best things in my schedule Christ? Or am I just on the hamster wheel because I don't really want to think about it and I like the activity I can do? Stop doing that. Evaluate your life. Ask Christ to help you. Number two. So what? Number two, break with empty practices. Break with empty practices, number two. 
whether they're religious practices or other routines, if it's draining you, if it's not founded in the word of God and the person of Christ, and it's not faithful or necessary for you to do this, sever it. Burn the bridge. Break with empty practices, friends. Some of you really, really need to do this. Some of you today, you know God is asking you, please stop the hamster wheel. He loves you. That's why, that's, that's why he tells you this. We may need to make a break with things for the sake of true worship and life for Christ. And we may need to break from things that are very meaningful, uh, that have been meaningful to us at one time or another. Things that might be valued by our family and things that many, many people still hold dear. We might need to make a sever from these things. Some of you, like me, you were raised in these empty traditions, external things that are wrong. Christ says they're old wineskins. All your effort just pours out under the ground. Why do you think you're exhausted and weary? Some of you may need to make some difficult life decisions by making a break, but it would be the best thing you've ever done. There's, there's like the bridge there. You're thinking, man, can I go across that? I don't know. I like the hamster wheel. I've never gone across the bridge. Go across the bridge, friend. God loves you. Better to do things God's way and walk in truth than remain in man-made traditions and live in some false, broken system. Number two. Number three, trust in Christ, not traditions. Trust in Christ, not traditions. That is for heaven then and right relationship with God now. It doesn't matter how rigidly Traditions are kept no matter how sincere and long-standing a tradition may be. None of them will put you in right relationship with God if they are not founded on the person and faith in Christ. It is not the fastidious keeping of religious routines that wipes away our sin, but the death of Jesus Christ. Trust Him. And then number four, deepen in Christ. Deepen in Christ. Number four, deepen in Christ. Deepen in your knowledge of Christ. Seek Him. Seek Him while He may be found. The Lord says, Behold, all who come to me, I will by no means cast away any of them. Come to Him. Seek Him. Deepen in His Word. Put away the skillful throwing of yourself through the fiery hoops. Come to Christ, deepen in Christ. For greater joys, deepen in Christ. For greater stability in your suffering, deepen in Christ. Joy really, joy is that will be the byproduct, uh, the byproduct sense you get when your soul is filled with Christ. It's like eating a really good meal when you're famished. The satisfaction you get after you eat the meal is not because you sat there for hours and days and thought about satisfaction. I'm thinking about satisfaction. I want satisfaction. That's not how it comes. It's a byproduct of taking in good food. Take in Christ. Take in His Word. Take in lots of it. Fill up with Christ and the byproduct will be joy, stability, I leave you with Christ's words 
and his call to break from formalism and experience the rest and the satisfaction in him. Matthew eleven twenty eight, one of the most profound verses. Christ says, come to me all who labor. Speaking to empty externalists, come to me all who labor. Get off the hamster wheel who are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And Lord Jesus, we pray to you and thank you for your love for us. Oh Lord, things can be so exhausting sometimes. But you desire to forgive us, to satisfy us. And Lord Jesus, it can be such a battle sometimes. Such a battle. Help us, Lord. Help us to fix our eyes on Christ. To lay aside every encumbrance in the sin which so easily entangles us. And to run the race with our eyes fixed on Christ. The author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Lord, all who are weary in here this morning, Lord, would, would you fill and satisfy their souls and let us live like it this week. In Jesus' name, amen.